Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, I'm Emma and this is How Long Have You Got, the Identity Podcast. When you first meet someone, the typical question is often, where are you from? And why shouldn't people be curious about your story? It seems like an innocuous question, but for many of us, it's a loaded one. Often we respond by saying, how long have you got? Because can we really pin it down and does it matter? I'll be speaking to some great people who are quite simply doing great things. People from all walks of life who are willing to share their stories. Of life, of love, of work and more. We'll see where the stories take us and the depths we reach or the heights we attain. Grab a drink, get your walking shoes, or just find your space. How long have you gone? Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of How Long Have You Got? The Identity Podcast. As the series has been progressing, B and I have noticed the extraordinary, rich, and complex intersectionalities that many of our guests identify with, with some, of course, being more dominant than others. So with this in mind, today's speaker, Ben Freeman, feels like an incredible guest to have on the show to speak about his experiences with coexistent dominant identities. Ben is a gay Jewish writer and educator focusing on Jewish identity, combating anti-Semitism, and raising awareness of the Holocaust. His first book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, was released earlier this year and has garnered huge international acclaim already. Through his work, his goal is to educate, inspire, and empower both Jewish and non-Jewish people around the world to have a better understanding of each other. Ben, we're delighted to have you with us. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure. Good. So, so Ben, you grew up in a, in a kosher household in Glasgow, of all places, in, in the 80s and 90s. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that was for you? Well, firstly, when you bring attention to the era, I'm like, wow, 80s and 90s, <laughs> I'm old. Um, in some ways, it well, was... Well, we're, we're the same age, so... <clears throat> <laughs> You know, in many ways, it was wonderful. Um, my family, as you said, we lived in Glasgow, and there's only about 5,000 Jews in Scotland. So we were really a minority within the Scottish minority in the UK. And we were proud Scots. I mean, I wore a kilt to my bar mitzvah. My brother wore a kilt to his wedding, and we wore kilts to my sister's wedding, both of which took place in Israel, which was very hot, as you can imagine, in a kilt. So we were proud Scots. We were proud British. But when you entered my home, it really felt like you were exploring and entering this other culture. You know, the, there was Hebrew script on the walls. There was the mezuzah, which is the little, I guess, how would you even describe it? It's a little scroll that we put on our doorpost. Jewish prayers. Um, so you see that. You saw, you know, Judaica, which is Jewish art, Jewish um, kind of ritual objects like the Hanukkah, the Shabbat candles special candles and it really was a wonderful experience and it was kind of all i knew so we had separate dishes milk and meat we were not allowed non-kosher food in the house we didn't necessarily keep fully kosher out of the house which is something that's very common 
So Jewish people, it's out of the house, we'll do one thing, but we have these kind of more kosher homes. Some people had two kitchens, we didn't, we had one kitchen, but we had separate dishes. We had dishes for Passover, specifically, that lived like upstairs in the attic, that we would bring down once a year. And it really felt like I was part of something rich and beautiful and special, and it was never something shameful, it was never something that I was not proud of, and it was never something depressing. And there are some people, because of our history, who relate to Jewishness through the tragedies and the oppression that we've experienced. But it was a celebration of Jewish life, and I really loved it. I don't necessarily live my life like that right now. You know, I live in Hong Kong. My partner isn't Jewish. I don't keep kosher anymore. I used to. For a while I was kosher, and for a while I was a kosher pescatarian, which made me kind of a nightmare to go out for dinner with. Um... So definitely my practice and the way that I express my Jewishness and even the way my Jewishness is expressed in my home is different. But I do think it's really important to have these reminders of this yeah. separate identity because, you know, you leave the house and you're just like everyone else. We didn't necessarily look um, outwardly Jewish. We didn't necessarily wear Jewish garb. I do now. I wear a kippah, I hate a, a skull cap now, but I didn't then. So it was this nice, it was nice to have this reminder that I was part of this mm. deep, rich heritage that felt a little bit like a special club, in all honesty. Yeah, well, well it's interesting because you talk about, you know, being part of something rich, something beautiful, something special. Um, when we spoke the other day, you referenced, I think, a rather interesting analogy um, that many of our listeners uh, will probably find, um, you know, quite unique um, and may be able to relate to in, in their own worlds. But you compared being Jewish to that of being in Harry Potter. You're, you know, you're part of the same world, but also separate. Can, can you expand on this? Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I can't take credit for this analogy. It was someone on Twitter, my friend Isaac DeCastro. But I really, when I saw it, it really struck me because that is what it's like. We're part of this, we're part of the wider world. We're part of British society or whichever diasporic community that we're a part of. And we do have those identities as well. So, you know, the Brits in Harry Potter, they love Hogwarts. The French, they love Bobatons, whatever it is. But we're also part of something that's quite separate. And there's an awareness, A, because the numbers are so small. So in Glasgow, really, I knew most Jewish people. You know, there were very few people that I would meet who didn't have some connection to my family. So we were all connected in some way, which has its positives, but also its negatives, as you can imagine. Like going to the shops and seeing people who are like, how are your parents? And you're like, I look rubbish. All I want to do in my baseball cap and my hoodie, much like I'm wearing now, to be honest, all I want to do is go and get my pizza and leave. But there was always people who were like, hey, how are you? How are your family? Which is nice, of course. But yeah, we were. We were part of this kind of other community within a community we had our own cultural practices we had our own ways of doing things and I think that people found it quite hard to understand how separate or how unique it was because as I said at that time in my life when I was still living in Glasgow I didn't wear a kippah I was at university I was just hanging out with my with, with my friends so on the surface level there may have been no difference between us but actually there was a great difference I didn't celebrate Christmas. I never celebrated Easter. My first Easter egg was when I was 31. Um, I had never tried eggnog until I was like, I think also 31. And it was, we had separate food. We had separate cultural practices. We had our own holiday. We had our own new year. It really was a community within a community. And it was something incredibly special. And I think that because the numbers are so small, 
and because you're always aware that you're different to everyone else, you feel that it's special. But it, yeah, it certainly does. When I saw that analogy, I was like, that is the perfect way to describe it. And I think, listen, I think that analogy could be used to describe many different experiences. Like, I don't really think it's just ours. I think even in the LGBTQ plus community, I think there are certain things that we would talk about that maybe kind of heterosexual people may not understand as much. But yeah, certainly. Yeah. We, my friend said online that we have our own newspapers, we have our own quarrels between us. Like, really, we have, like, inter-Jewish fights that the non-Jewish world would just be like, but you're all Jews. What are you fighting about? It's like, oh, there's a way. There's a way for us to fight. I have to ask, though, Ben, what was your verdict on the eggnog? Do you feel like you missed out? It was amazing. And actually, I became obsessed with hot cross bun. Hot cross buns last Easter. I had never had a hot cross bun before and I became obsessed with them. And really for like a year, because there's a Marks and Spencer's in Hong Kong, we would eat hot, cro hot cross buns regularly. And it is, it's kind of strange because, as I said, my partner isn't Jewish. So we have a big Christmas tree every year and we do Christmas, but it always feels like it's his holiday. And it always mm. feels like, and I want to make it special for him because he is always so supportive of me. But it doesn't really feel like, it doesn't feel like my Christmas tree. It feels like it's his Christmas tree in my living room. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, you're right. Uh, you know, as as you said, um, you know, many, if not all of our listeners will arguably have multiple identities. Um, in, in your case, you are Jewish and gay. Um, and, you know, you will surely have other identities that, of course, are continuously forming and evolving. But how do you manage um, and also marry these multiple identities? It can be quite difficult, especially because both communities experience um, prejudice from the outside world. And I think also the way they manifest, like I will say that my Jewish identity was formed 20 years before I came out as gay. Mm. And because I came out, and actually I had a very difficult coming out, and it wasn't because of my family, it wasn't because of my community, I had just absorbed all of the homophobia from the world around us. You know, you mentioned I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I think that I was 10 when Section 28 was repealed. So this was the world that we grew up in. I remember seeing the AIDS um, warning um, adverts that appeared and you had the huge tombstone. So that was the context that I grew up in. So I had a very difficult time accepting it. And because of that specific context and because I had such a difficult time accepting it, when I came out, I did find it very difficult to marry. Because my LGBTQ plus identity, it felt like a priority. It felt like I absolutely had to come to terms with this, otherwise it would kill me. And actually, mm. I allowed my Jewish identity to kind of fade into the background a little. And I, and I put myself in situations that were not healthy because, with regards to my Jewishness. So for example, my first boyfriend was an anti-Semite. And I kind of just accepted that because I was so desperate to be in a relationship and I was so desperate to have a partner and I did love him. And it kind of represented this, all of the possibilities of what it meant to be an out gay person. So it is quite difficult to marry because I think one thing that we don't necessarily recognize is that, is that there can also be tension between your two identities. So I may for a period have found happiness with this person, but actually he did not accept a whole aspect of my identity. So finding someone who kind of loves you for all of you can be tricky. And I'm so lucky that, you know, I'm with a, a non-Jewish person now, but he is so unbelievably supportive. But it isn't always easy, actually. And one of the ways that I found to marry them is through the lessons and the journeys of pride. 
Yeah. And I, and I think you, you make a very good point in, in, um, you know, talking about tension between identities, because even if you inherently feel that you've, you're doing everything in your power and you, you, to, to, to marry these identities, it's not always inherently possible. So I wonder, do you feel as if you've, you've now, you know, today found a space or a community, whatever you want to call it, in which you can truly express your identities comfortably and authentically? And do you, do you even think such a space truly exists? I think it does exist, but I think you have to make it. You know what, I, like we were speaking about before, the people who we're on their shoulders, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus pioneers of the last 30, 40 years, we're on their shoulders. We have to be that for people coming up. We have to be that for these intersectional identities. So I believe it is possible, but I believe we have to work at it. So I am very vocal in my Jewish advocacy about being an LGBTQ plus Jew. You know, I talk about it all the time. I talk about actually the fact that many of the people leading the fight against anti-Jewish racism are LGBTQ plus Jews. So because of that, that makes me extremely proud of those two identities. And I can look at them as one and I can look at other LGBTQ plus Jews from history like Harvey Milk, like Anne Cronenberg, like Robbie Kaplan, all of these amazing people who were really instrumental in progressing the LGBTQ plus community who were also Jewish. But I can also look at both communities separately and feel proud of them and think wow like what a pedigree all of the incredible contributions that lgbtq plus people have made to the world and then the same for the jewish community and even though both communities have experienced kind of many many persecutions we have thrived so i do think it's possible to to marry your two identities but i think it requires work and I think that is something that we have to recognise. This doesn't just happen. And that's when I was young and I came out, I was like, I am out, therefore I accept myself. And I was like, oh, actually, that is not the case at all. It was a continuous work. This is where I, it starts. Yeah, Absolutely, mm -hmm. precisely. And I don't think we discuss that enough about coming out, that actually the coming out is the first step many and many times. But yeah, I think it's about continuous work and continuous even if I don't always feel 100% comfortable, it's still doing it. So even if I'm not 100% comfortable talking about both aspects of my identity, I still have to do it. Because I think ultimately, being a part of both of these communities has really drilled in me the notion that there are certain, certain things bigger than me. This isn't yeah. about me. This is about both of these communities and people who will look at me as a potential role model or as someone who can normalise the other so for lgbtq plus people who aren't jewish can say oh look you can be jewish and lgbtq plus or for jews who are heterosexual you can say oh you can be a proud jew and be lgbtq plus and you don't have to compromise and i think that is really important but absolutely it's constant work yeah and and you know in your case ben you're, you're jewish but when we spoke the other day you said that you also feel British. You, mm. you grew up in Glasgow, but currently live in Hong Kong, yet you feel most at home in Israel. So what is what does home look like to you? That's such a good question. I feel like a, a song should start playing now. Um, home is many things. Like I am British. I love the UK. I love London. I feel comfortable there. I love, like you know, the, the Jewish community is very royalist. And that was one of the ways that we actually showed our loyalty. So every Shabbat across 
I think the whole of the Commonwealth, we say a prayer for the Queen and the royal family. So kind of this loyalty has been drilled into me. And I do feel British. I watched Prince Philip's funeral and I cried because poor Queenie was sitting by herself. I watched all of the royal weddings. I really love it. And I feel connected to, I do feel connected to my British non-Jewish friends. But also when I go to Israel, I'm not a minority anymore. You know, it's like, I guess if we're kind of looking at the Harry Potter analogy, it's like going into Hogwarts and all of the peculiarities or specifics about being Jewish, it's just the whole country. You know, the Jewish holidays are the national holidays. You don't, you don't even need to think about it, which in a way is quite strange because I think if you're in the diaspora, so outside of Israel, it's such a, it's so present in your mind, whereas in Israel, it doesn't need to be because they're in the Jewish state, in our indigenous homeland, being Jewish. But yeah, I mean, home is many things. So in many ways, I feel super comfortable in Israel. And in Tel Aviv, I think, is where I feel most comfortable. But also, as a British person, I can't stand the fact that the Israelis don't queue. I'm like, guys, you need some order. There isn't even a word in Hebrew for queue. So, you know, it's like different aspects of my identity come out. So I was walking in the park the other day with my partner, and people were exercising outside, and they were warming up by dancing. And the British side of me, I almost died. I was like through secondhand embarrassment. I was like, I am mortified, which is so British, right? Stiff upper lip, don't rock the boat. And my partner was like, wow, you're particularly British today. And I was like, I am mortified for these people, which, and my partner was like trying to dance as well. I was like, move it. Um, but in other ways, I'm totally Jewish. So it's, it, you're right. It's complicated to have multiple hyphenated identities because I'm Jewish, I'm gay, I'm Scottish, I'm British, I'm European. Um, and I think in some ways I feel connected to all of those things. Well, well, let me ask you then, Ben, do you, do you think that it's become increasingly difficult to find our identities? I mean, you know, arguably there are more intersecting identities than ever before. And so many of us live diverse lives, um, you know, in every respect, whether it be geographically, socially, physically, politically, and so on. I mean, I'm half Swedish, half British, you know, I've grown up in nearly 10 countries. I don't really identify with any particular religion, group or community for that, that matter. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm not really sure who my people are. Um, so I wonder, you know, how do you, how do you build or find a community or, or uh, find a sense of belonging when you don't really belong anywhere yet everywhere at the same time? Yeah, it can be very tricky. And I'll speak with regards to the LGBTQ plus community. And it's something we actually mentioned just before. It's not a familial structure. So when I came out, I was surrounded by heterosexuals. So I had to seek out an LGBTQ plus community. So it's why often many of my LGBTQ plus friends I have hooked up with, or they're the friends of people I've hooked up with or dated, because that really is how we find our community, right? Um, so that is more challenging. And that makes it more challenging to remember our shared past, historical memory, to connect with one another um, on a really deeper level than just hooking up. But I think that for me being Jewish, I've, it's always been drummed into me that I am part of something. And it's, you know, I say in my book that each of us represent a thread in a much greater tapestry that extends 5,000 years in the past. And I've always felt that. So there is this kind of strange idea that, you know, you can go to Jerusalem and you can go to the Western Wall and you can have no dinner plans and you can meet someone who will invite you for dinner and you will have yeah. no contact with these people. You will not be their friends. They'll just be like, hey, come for dinner. I've been in the streets of Jerusalem again and people have asked me to take a photograph and they're like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from Glasgow. And they're like, oh, do you know the Jacobs family? And I'm like, yes, I do. 
I actually do know the Jacobs family. It was like, I was like, people say six degrees of separation. It's like two degrees of separation in the Jewish world. So from that yeah. regard, I've always felt like I belong. But absolutely, I mean, living in Hong Kong as an economic migrant, I had to do, I had to seek out a community. And actually, my closest friends here are not Jewish. My partner, as I said, isn't Jewish. My closest friend is mixed Filipino-Chinese. And I think there's something really beautiful in that because while I'm so proud of my communities and I love them and I love both aspects of my identities, I also want to learn about other people. I don't want to ghettoize myself and I want to share my culture. So when I have Rosh Hashanah dinner, which is celebrating Jewish New Year, I was the only Jewish person. My partner was there. My close friend was there from France, his Taiwanese boyfriend, and my, um, my very close friend, Joanna, who's Filipino-Chinese. So it's, and that was wonderful, and I was like telling them the story, and it felt special. And yes, of course, there was a part of me that was, you know, that sometimes you just wish you're surrounded by people who are like you, who just get it. But actually, I think having distance can be really helpful, but it can be very difficult. You know, I think it's like choosing a movie going on Netflix and now we have so many options about where to live and how we're going to live our lives that it can make it more tricky to kind of ground yourself yeah yeah no you're right my god just the thought of trying to pick a movie on Netflix is just oh, yeah um but um you know many of our listeners will have you know say conflicting political opinions or differing religious views from that of their ethnic or cultural upbringing and in your case you mentioned that growing up you were rejected for being a Jew but embraced for being gay by the very same people so i wonder how did you learn to navigate the human desire to you know box identities and, and have a checklist for for everything i mean you know if you, if you fit you can come into the club if you don't fit you're out it's such a great question i think probably at first i didn't do a very good job of it i probably was willing to kind of suppress one aspect of my identities which would have been the jewish side I would have been like, oh yeah, I'll, that's like not that important to me. Even though I worked for the Jewish community, it was, it became less significant. It was all about me being a proud gay man, which people really supported. But as I've got older and as I've seen the world change and events unfold, I've realized that actually that's not real acceptance. And it goes both ways. To really accept me, you have to accept all of me. You have to accept Jewish people and LGBTQ plus people, you know, from both sides. And I've learned not to tolerate, um, I guess, that conflict in a practical level. So I'm not going to associate with people who do not support both aspects of my identity because they're who I am and I can't change them. And it's not healthy to suppress a part of you to fit in. You know, we t I tell my students every day, be who you are, don't change who you are fit to fit in, but here we're doing it. And actually it's really unhealthy. And I think that... I've lost friendships because of it. You know, certainly in the last year or so, when overt anti-Jewish racism has become so prominent and I've seen people not speak out, but they're the same people who will celebrate pride and say happy pride, but they're ignoring when Jews are being beaten in the streets. It's like, I actually can't, I can't do this. And it really is a practical level and I've had difficult conversations with people about it and I've had, I've ended relationships because it's, I am one person. There's not gay Ben, Jewish Ben, British Ben, Scottish Ben. Everything is whole. Everything is one in me. So it cannot be that I, you know, silo something over here or silo something over there. No. So it's, it's really practical. And it's, and it's painful. And people always say to me, what do I do if my friends don't accept me? It's like, well, it's easy for me to say, but they're actually not your friends. 
You know, mm. if your friends continue to to demean or make LGBTQ plus jokes or stereotypes by the LGBTQ plus community, then they're not your friends. And the same with the Jewish community. If they're not supporting you, then they're not actually your friends. And I think that is quite a difficult lesson, particularly for minorities to to learn that actually maybe the people that we love or associate with are not are not our chosen family. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a very very good point. And you know, Ben, you're you're an author, um, but you also are head of humanities at the Harbour School in Hong Kong. And you just mentioned, you know, um, speaking to your students about um, standing up for who they are and and what they believe in. And evidently, um, you know, you will feel that knowledge is key to helping people understand some of the anti-Semitic behaviour that we have and are continuing to experience today. But do you think that knowledge alone is enough to change people's behaviours? That's such a great question. I love it. Um, no, it's not. It's not enough. But it's really the first step. So, you know, I'm in the middle. Actually, not really. I'm at the end now of teaching a Holocaust class. And it's called The Road to the Final Solution. And really, we've spent probably about maybe three weeks on the actual Holocaust itself. And the rest leading up to this point has been context. So we spent a huge amount of time learning about the history of anti-Semitism, the history of the Jewish people. So that is really vital. But then I think it's about helping people make connections. So understand that it is not a thing of the past. This is something very prevalent today and something that still impacts us and affects our lives. But I also think that it's about sharing emotional experiences. And, and I, I'm, I've always been someone who is, who is comfortable with being vulnerable. And I was talking, my students asked me today, actually, about the trauma. They were like, what is, what is it like to be Jewish in the shadow of the Holocaust? Because I really feel that as a Jew born, as you said, in the 80s, I mean, I was born in 87, so 42 years after the war and the Holocaust ended. I grew up seeing survivors. I grew up, it, it was in my world, and I felt like I grew up in the shadow of it. And I said to them, you know, I was in Hong Kong in December. My partner and I were out getting pizza. And you can drink on the streets in Hong Kong. We were not drinking, um, but we were waiting for our pizza and we had our masks on. But some people weren't. And the Hong Kong police, they cordoned off the top of the street and a group of police moved down the street with megaphones. And they were like saying, go home or put your masks on. It was nothing to do with my Jewishness. Literally zero to do with that. And then they started cordoning off the bottom of the street. And I had a physical response. My palms started sweating. I, my heart rate went up, I felt like fight or flight, and I said to the partner, if the pizza's not here in a minute, I'm leaving and I'll meet you at home. Mm. And it was, so that, sharing that experience with my students, and they were like, whoa. Yeah. I was like, I'm 34, living in Hong Kong, where it's incredibly safe to be Jewish, and I had a physical response to something because of intergenerational trauma. So you have to share knowledge, but you also have to share experience and form connection. It's not just about... You know, in 380 CE, the Rome converted to Christianity. Okay, fine, that's true. But how does it impact us? And listen, we're all people at the end of the day. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, um, again, a really interesting one, because we touched upon the other day, you know, people fall into pervasive behaviors, some of which you've touched upon just now, because they're either afraid or they feel powerless and they need to direct their, their anger or whatever emotion it is somewhere, when in fact, what people really need is, is distance, which you mentioned, you know, earlier on um, uh, today, to grasp the fuller picture and really understand each other. So can you just tell me a little bit more about how your time in Hong Kong in particular has contributed to this thought? 
Absolutely. So my father passed away in 2017, in February 2017. And for the next maybe year and a half, I was totally like not involved in any of this work. I was just trying to put myself back together. And then it was the height of the Jeremy Corbyn labour anti-Semitism crisis. And I joined Twitter to take part in it. And I really played an active role in it. And it's really been non-stop since. But when I turn my phone off, it doesn't go away. The emotions, the trauma, the pain, it stays with you. But I'm not surrounded by it. My friends here are not continuously talking about it. And if we do talk about it, they approach it with a very refreshing perspective. Even when I was writing my book, my friend Joanna, who I've referenced a lot, who's my closest, one of my closest friends in Hong Kong, again, who's mixed Filipino-Chinese, we go for walks. We're like old ladies. We go for walks every weekend. <laughs> and I would talk about my book to her. And I would say, okay, I'm writing this chapter and I'm finding it tricky. And we would talk through it. And she would ask me really clarifying questions that came with no emotional baggage. Because actually, if it's your situation, if you're in it, it is very difficult to see clearly. So although I was experiencing the trauma and the shock and the pain of the labour anti-Semitism crisis and then everything that's followed, I can still turn my phone off. And I'm surrounded by a totally different society. And I think mm. distance is so important. And, you know, what we've seen in the last few weeks has been very frightening. And actually, it's, it's worried me because not just because of the horrendous, you know, attacks on Jews we're seeing and the horrendous anti-Jewish racism online, but it makes me worried because we're responding in real time. There's no time to think. And I think distance is so important. I think having time to think, having time to formulate your thoughts, respond, understand not fight or flight is so important so i actually feel like being here has made me a better jew it's made me be definitely a better jewish leader because i can come to the table with a different perspective because there's no threat for me really of being physically attacked in the street whereas that is not the case for jewish people living in other parts of the diaspora particularly europe or america yeah. and that safety changes how i interact with the topic Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, at the intersection of being gay and being Jewish is, as you, you know, have written about in your book, you know, the notion of pride, which of course is very timely given that it's, it's pride month at the moment. Um, and I know that when we last spoke, um, you know, we defined pride as being fundamentally self-respect and love and compassion for the other. But what is, what does pride mean to you and, and how important do you think it is to recognize pride in oneself? I think it's fundamentally important, and I think it was really rooted to self-determination. And self-determination as a collective, but also as an individual, to state your claim to define your own identity, to respect your own identity. Because at first, for me, I hated myself, and I wanted to become comfortable with myself. I wanted to accept myself. But actually, that's not enough. It's like now we don't really talk about tolerance. Tolerance is actually quite an outdated idea. We don't want to be tolerated. We want to maybe be accepted or we want equality so for me pride was kind of the continuation of this journey of acceptance and it was it was contentment i remember the first time someone said to me would you be straight if you could choose and i was like no i love being gay i love the lgbtq plus community i love it i love i think it's amazing so no i wouldn't choose to be straight that's pride when you don't want to change yourself and i think it can apply 
in so many different ways. It can apply to how we feel about our bodies. It can apply how we feel about so many different facets of ourselves. But particularly when you are a minority, and a minority with kind of intersectional or intersecting identities, it becomes even more pivotal because you can tear yourself apart. You can yeah. internalize all of the pain, all of the shame, all of the trauma, all of the abuse that is inflicted on us, and you can believe it. And actually, pride is the rejection of that and saying, I like who I am. I'm proud to be part of this community. I'm a good person. I wouldn't change it. And it has absolutely no bearing on the other. It's not about supremacy. It's not about, well, I'm better than you. It's about you do you, boo, and I'll do me. But I'm happy doing me. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. And I think, you know, the psychologist Esther Perel, who, um, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with, uh, speaks a lot on the importance of rituals, which are, of course, are very different to routine, informing both individual and collective identity. And Judaism has a lot of rituals that denote Jewishness, whereby even Jews who are not religious are are Jewish. Um, do you think that that resonates with you? And, you know, how how do you find your own identity shaping rituals? I think it's fundamentally important. And actually, in my book, I really talk about Jewish action, which is exactly what you're talking about with rituals. You can't, like, Jewishness is not an idea. It's something very tangible. And the way I think about it is that we're, Jew, Jewishness doesn't belong to me. I'm a caretaker for the next generation. But how do I pass it on to the next generation? And it has to be through something tangible. I think about the separate dishes. I think about the mezuzah on the wall. I think about my father, you know, kind of in pretty muddled Hebrew, in all honesty, saying the prayer for the bread, or my mother and my sister lighting the candles. It's tied so much to tangible things. And when my father passed away, I, I was so happy to be Jewish because we were given a, a handbook on how to mourn. You know, my father passed away on the, Saturday, on the Sunday morning when I was in Hong Kong. I flew back on the Sunday night. I arrived in the UK on the Monday. My father's funeral was on the Tuesday. Like, incredibly fast. And he, he was ill for a while, so I'd been dreading his funeral. It became very apparent he was not going to get better. And I was... It would make me feel sick. But actually... When it happened, I was in such a state of shock, even though I, it's weird because you know someone is going to pass away, but when it happens, you're still in shock. I, I can't really explain it. But I was in such a state of shock that I actually couldn't really take it all in, which I'm really happy for. But then we're given a guidebook on how to process, how to mourn. So for the next seven days, all of his pictures were taken down. The mirrors were covered because that's the, the period of Shiva where we sit Shiva and we have prayers in the home um, and you're not supposed to shave for 30 days, and I had a horrible neck beard, um, which it was like just extended from here right down with absolutely no jaw definition, which was quite a shame. Um, but I remember after the 30 days, I'd made my hair appointment, and I got a haircut, and I shaved, and I felt lighter. And then every year on the Hebrew anniversary of his passing, because we, you know, again, with reference back to our the magical world of Jews, I guess, we have our own calendar. So the year right now is five, seven, oh no, I'm gonna embarrass myself by getting it wrong. Five, seven, eight, one, I think. That is our year. So it's not actually 2021. I think it's 5,000 and 5,000, five, seven, eight, one. Although I'm sorry to all the Jewish listeners who I've just got that wrong. Um, so at, on the Jewish anniversary of his passing, I light a candle called a Yartzeit candle that burns for 25 hours. And I say a prayer called Kaddish. And the English translation of Kaddish is all about God. I don't actually believe in God. 
I'm not really interested in that. But what I'm doing is commemorating my father in a way that he would have commemorated his father and that my grandfather would have commemorated his father, stretching back thousands of years. And that to me is what is so important. And ritual and connecting, it's really amazing. I mean, really when my father passed, I was so thankful to be Jewish because I think I would have been lost. I think I would not have been able to process the enormous loss that I had just suffered. And I was, as I said, given a handbook. But in even in cheerier ways, you know, I have a Hanukkah behind me that you guys can see, but the listeners cannot. Like, you know, lighting that and commemorating a story that took place two and a half thousand years ago is incredibly grounding. It make it really reminds you that you're part of something special and bigger than you. And I think that is actually a particularly important lesson in the world right now, that it isn't all about us as individuals. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think, you know, look, you've 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 touched upon some um really uh deep um topics here there's a lot of food for thought we've talked about you know tension between identities you know um accepting identities existing um what what is it that keeps you up at night then wow i guess it's the same stuff that keeps everyone up at night i mean money worries like oh my god stop shopping online um anxiety I for sure suffer from anxiety and particularly after my father passed away I, I I used to be an extrovert and I'm now an introvert I have I get massive social anxiety which is quite weird because my work is so public facing but actually my partner will often go out to parties and I'll stay home and he's amazingly supportive but I just really it makes me feel feel very anxious so that I worry about I think many of our listeners would probably be able to relate to that, especially given, yeah. you know, I, you know, we're in the UK at the moment and we're coming out of a lockdown and people are sort of trying to climatize and sort of uh, reprioritize what it is that they feel comfortable with and um, whether or not it is, you know, what I, what I call the, the, you know, part of the, the quote unquote real world, which is, you know, the world before COVID. Um, but absolutely. You know, I taught, I taught a class last year about the relationship between Japan and Korea and the class was really about, how world events impact the individual. And we, as individuals, have been massively impacted by something we couldn't even imagine. And I think that we do have to kind of stop and take some distance and be like, how do I want to go forward? What is the new normal going to be? Also just readjusting to society. You know, I think for specific people who have spent so much time alone, so much time inside, cocooned in these safe little environments, I think that readjusting is going to be very difficult. And I think we as a society have to be supportive. We also have to acknowledge that for many people, COVID was not a time of safety. I know that people talked about domestic abuse rates um, rising, which I think is it's the most horrifying thing. But we need to be aware of these things and acknowledge it. But world events, and to be honest, I worry about, I worry about my work. I worry about the Jewish people. I worry about, am I doing the right thing? Am I using my voice correctly? Because... When you have a, a certain profile, you always get an enormous amount of hate. And some of it is, well, I mean, most of it is just disgusting. But certain people, but it does make you question yourself. And, and I think that's actually okay. It's okay that it makes you question yourself. Like, am I doing this correctly? Am I right? I think that a little bit of imposter syndrome isn't a bad thing as long as you don't let it control you. But I think I, I, I'm kept up at night for the same reasons everyone else is. There's also a bloody bird in Hong Kong 
that has I've never heard before, but it seems to be all over Asia. Did you guys see the show The Serpent? Yes, yes. So this, it was this bird was in the serpent, and I was like watching the show, and I was like, "What? Where is that coming from?" And it like sits on my bloody windowsill, and I'm not even going to do an impression because it'd be so embarrassing. But it like makes this like it's basically a horny bird and trying to mate, <laughs> and it is like hooting. Yeah. So that keeps me up. And this is this is so funny because you know uh, my co-producer and I be uh, we're just having a chat earlier this morning about um, the birds of London at the moment, um, and it's it's amazing because I I live right next to um, you know a, a lovely garden square, but um it's home to I think ninety percent of the parakeets in London, um, not not literally, but it feels like it. And um, you know you wake up at sort of five six in the morning, and it's it is as if you're in the uh, Amazon jungle, which which is beautiful in its own right, but you know yeah. Um, perhaps not when you um, have a hangover no, from it, the night before. I'm like, <laughs> I want that bird to die. I want to like find that bird. I want to kill all of those birds because it's like constant. And then they're all over. I mean, they're really all over Asia and all over Hong Kong. So I arrive at work and I hear them at work. And it's it's like the heart, the beating heart from Edgar Allan Poe. It really like, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm going to go mad. And my partner is like snoozing all the way through it. And I'm sitting there like, and also I think I probably like many of your listeners I'm also totally addicted to my phone. And I think that is also something that is a byproduct of COVID. So like being constantly on our screens, constantly on our phones, it's, I have to be very strict with myself to put my phone down at night because my partner will go to sleep and I'll scroll on Instagram looking at cats and it does relax me, but also I'm still looking at a screen. And if I wake up because of that bloody bird or because of anxiety, I have to really train myself not to just go and pick up my phone. Um, yeah. To yeah, be well... trying to pick to myself. It's, it's interesting. My, um, a friend of mine um, uh, just uh, shared um, the recent podcast with Eckhart Tolle and Oprah Winfrey. And, um, you know, obviously Eckhart Tolle um, has, uh, you know, he's been around for ages. Um, he's one of the biggest, like, spiritual influencers and leaders of our time. But um, just, I don't know what it is, but perhaps it's um, because this, the last sort of, you know, 15 months have been particularly challenging for me in many different ways. But um, you're able to relate in a different way. And he really talks about, you know, overcoming adversity and, and being present and just kind of training the mind to just really think about the now and not, um, which, you know, so many of us are stifled by anxiety and thinking about tomorrow and the past, which really um, doesn't do us any, any good at all. Um, so you're right. It is, you know, very much, it, it's a difficult work. It's sort of trying to, to train the mind um, um, as, as, as best as you can to really sort of be in the present moment and actually absorb and feel um, feel how you are inherently in the moment. Um, yeah, and I had a conversation with my friend um, who was the kind of the victim of probably the worst pylon in the history of Jews being online um, just the other day. And it was obviously very stressful for her. And we were saying, you know, we have to process this. Like, we were talking like, oh, are we experiencing PTSD from all of the, the racism that we're experiencing? And saying, well, no, we're not experiencing PTSD because it's happening right now. Maybe in a year we'll experience PTSD. But also we have to process the good things that happen to us. And that is something I'm particularly, you know, not good at. Like, you know, my book was published in February, so it's been out for three and a half months. And it really has had huge success. And I'm, and it's, and I'm not really reflecting on that. I'm just like, okay, what's next? What's the second book? And I really started planning that. And it's, and I don't, I, I don't know how we do it really. I find it very difficult to stop and to just be content in the moment without constantly looking forward. And I'm a deeply ambitious person. 
which I think is great, but you have to also celebrate and process and give yourself time to breathe, which is not easy. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And this is also something that B and I speak about all the time. Um, you know, um, we're very much cut from the same cloth. I think as many people are who live in, you know, central London who are young and ambitious and trying to hustle and make things work. Um, you know, you, you achieve, but then the, the goalpost has just moved and, uh, you're just striving for the next thing. Yeah. Um, so, so I wonder then Ben, um, a short little shout out or a takeaway that you want to leave our listeners with. Be open to other experiences. So I can talk about specifically with regards to my Jewish identity. I'm constantly being told by non-Jewish people what it means to be a Jew. And they're not necessarily doing it out of badness. They have had specific perceptions, which is fine. But when I, a Jewish person, and also someone who wrote a book about Jewish identity, says, actually, that isn't quite right, I'm not necessarily met with, oh, wow, so tell me about it. And it's the same for me. You know, when I came over here, I for sure had preconceptions of what it meant to live in Hong Kong, what it meant to be from the Philippines, from Asia in general. And I think that be open to other experiences, because actually, we're so limited you know, our worldview is shaped by our worlds, our experiences, and there's so many other out, so many others out there which are just as valid, which will lead to people having a totally different perspective. And um, we're also, it's about you know listening and being open and being respectful because something that COVID has shown us, you know, Madonna said, um, very annoyingly, like this is a great equalizer. It's like shut up, Madonna. No, it's not. Um, you're in your bath full of rose petals and people are dying so no not quite the same but there is a world I, there is a world community where you know we're all watching what's happening in India and other places horrified and heartbroken and I do think that we have to kind of reinforce this notion of a global community what does it mean to be a person what does it mean to be a person in 2021 and we all come from different places we speak different languages we have different cultures some of which we might not understand yeah. But it's about listening and being open and being a lifelong learner, which I know is kind of like a bit of a cheesy thing for a teacher to say, but it's really true. You know, I have, when I wrote my book, I was researching specific topics and I had to be open to my mind being changed. What does the research say? That's what's important. And it wasn't my preconception. What does the research say? And I think that is something we have to train ourselves to do. It isn't always comfortable, but it will ultimately lead us to being, I guess, more enlightened and being more understanding of the world around us and other people's experiences. Thank you so much, Ben. Honestly, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us. I've, I've certainly learned so much more about, um, you know, um, experiencing and living with, you know, coexisting dominant identities. And it's just been really great to hear your thoughts as well. So, so thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of How Long Have You Got, the Identity Podcast. How Long Have You Got is hosted by me, Emma Blackmore, and co-produced with B. Pizarra Aparizio. Sound design by Billy Clark. Music by The Amazing Parallels. And cover art by Milena DeLuca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all soon.